Um, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where uh, something, a, a challenge is put before you, a responsibility, something you had to do, but you find it extraordinarily, if not impossibly difficult. So let me tell you, uh, my, my experience in my very first day of college. So it was 1980 uh, when I started UCLA, and my major at that time was mathematics. And I, was, uh, I switched eventually to computer engineering, but I started out as a math major at UCLA. I felt uh, somewhat confident in math. Um, back then, there were not a lot of AP classes, but uh, our school had AP calculus. So I, I, you know, I had AP calculus. Uh, I always felt that, um, you know, if I can't speak English, I, at least I need to be able to do math. And so I was fairly good in math, so I thought. And my, my very first college class was calculus, okay? And because I had my AP calculus uh, in high school, it was a little bit higher. And so my very first class, very first day, I got to class a little early. It was a small classroom. I sat down. And I was somewhat nervous. But this is my very first first college class, and it's in calculus. I wanted to do well. I sat toward the front where I can hear the professor well, but I sat uh, on the left side so that the professor couldn't pick on me. Like I said, I got there a little early, and then um, as, as the class was going to begin, the class filled out with students. And one of the things I noticed was that I was really nervous about my very first class, and everyone else seemed somewhat calm. Like, you know, this is old hat to them. But nevertheless, the professor uh, uh, eventually came in. I still remember kind of what she looked like. She was a, a female and, and brunette hair, and she got up to the front, and I ha- got out my notebook, got, had my mechanical pencil ready to begin my college career. I, 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 in of all the subjects, I thought math was my strength. This was calculus. I had AP calculus. Uh, I'm ready, and I wanted to do well. So I'm sitting toward the front, waiting for the professor to begin talking, and I was ready to take notes and and just kill this class. And then the professor opened her mouth, and sound began to come out of her mouth. But I could not understand what she was saying. She kept talking, and and I still didn't quite understand uh, what she was saying. I, I thought, okay, college-level calculus must be hard, but why is it that I don't understand anything she is saying? I, uh, you know, I leaned forward on my desk. I pointed my ears toward her as if that would help. I, I heard the sounds coming out of her mouth, but I just, none of it made sense to me. It was all gibberish. But I looked around the class to see if maybe uh, uh, she was just speaking gibberish, but all the other students in the class seemed like they, knew, they were tracking with her. They were nodding in agreement at certain parts. They were taking notes in other parts. But it was just me and me only. So I tried harder to understand. I, 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 you know, I know this is college, but the difference between um, high school and college, even if it's a calculus class, I should be able to understand at least a simple, you know, hey, welcome to the class. So I, I was sitting and, and really trying to focus to, uh, to see if uh, I could understand anything she was saying. And after a while, I gave up. It must have been a, you know, two, three, five minutes. I'm not quite sure. And I was really confused, and so I finally turned to a neighbor and asked, what class is this? 
And my neighbor said, this is upper division Spanish. I had walked into the wrong class early with all of these upper classmen trying to understand uh, a language that I did not know. You know, it's funny because once in a while, we are given a challenge, a task, and we are sincere, and we try really, really hard because we know it's the right thing to do. But even when we try with all our might, the task becomes impossible for us. The command is inescapable, but the command also feels impossible for us. Two weeks ago, one of the things that we ought to have blessed assurance is this, that we have been given an inescapable command, that is, we need to love one another. But I said at the end of the message two weeks ago that if you try with all your might to love other people that you're going to be disappointed. It's going to feel like you're you're in a math class, but the professor is talking Spanish to you. And so today, I wanted to finish out some of that truth. And and, um, if you have your Bibles, would you turn your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And And I will be reading uh, the passage. We're going to be covering verses 7 through 21 this morning, but I'm just going to read verses 7 and and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is the reading of God's word. Lord, we come before you and we thank you. May we listen not only with our minds, but with our hearts. May we learn not with critical minds, but with a bowed spirit. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wanted to talk to you about love, and I'm going to call this the supernatural love. Supernatural love, and you'll understand what I mean uh, when I say this. And I wanted to talk about three parts of supernatural love. That is the source of supernatural love, the process of supernatural love, and the implications of supernatural love. And let's begin with the source of supernatural love. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard of the author, uh, C.S. Lewis. He's the the person who wrote uh, books like Mere Christianity and Screwtape Letters, as well as Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobes, a children's novel with wonderful uh, metaphors of Christ. Um, He also had a book, um, which not a lot of people have read, but they have heard about it. It's a book called The Four Loves. In it, he describes what is known as a category, natural love. And what he means by natural love is it's a kind of a love that is very natural, that even if you are a non-Christian or Christian, uh, that even if you have uh, been fallen from this from sin in Genesis chapter 3, that this is the kind of love that you practice and have the ability to practice. He, he categorizes three types of love as uh, natural love. The first of those types of love is that of um, uh, philia love or phileo love. And what we kind of know this as a friendship love. 
It exists between uh, people who have uh, things in common, shared values, shared interests, shared activities. It's what causes you to say, I love my BFF, okay, my best friend. And what, requ- what is required of, stor- uh, of filial love is that of commonality. The second kind of natural love is eros love. It is the romantic love or a, a erotic love or a love that uh, lovers or uh, between a husband and wife may experience. Um, and the thing that, that is required in eros love is that of attraction. So I love my wife. I'm extremely attracted to her. The third kind of love is what um, is known as storge love. It is liking someone through the fondness of familiarity. Uh, preachers oftentimes call this uh, familial love or family love. But you know, when C.S. Lewis wrote about it, he spoke uh, of, of love that derives out of um, familiarity, a, a natural affection just that develops out of just knowing someone. In the Korean language, the language that I grew up with, there's a word called chung. Chung. And chung um, means like you have a fondness for someone, not because you like them or find attractive, it's just because you're used to them. You've been with them for a long time. And, and C.S. Lewis says that storge love is that kind of a love. It's not because there's an inherent attraction, but because you've done things together, a familiarity. And so we often call it family love. A parent has a love for a child, not because the child uh, is born with an inherent uh, likability, but um, having raised that child, a mother can't help but to storge love the child. Now, uh, having said all this, uh, C.S. Lewis categorizes all three of these natural loves as need love. Need love. Meaning, we love either as in philea, or uh, eras, or storge, because we need to love, because that other party has something that we need. So a a boy that is wanting to date a girl finds attraction. She's pretty. And so he asks her out, and they go out, and and they're at dinner talking, and she talks and talks about things that he normally would have absolutely no interest in. But he listens with the patience of, a, of an amazing listener. And why is it that he's doing so? Because um, he loves her, yes, with an eras love, meaning he needs her affection. He wants her affection in his life. Uh, I call it not simply need uh, love, but get love. Natural love we give because we want to get something from the other party. A family love, a friendship, loyalty, or a romantic relationship. But here's a problem with, a, with natural love, and it is a kind of love that uh, almost all human beings experience and, and give, in fact. So even when the vilest of non-Christian or the most wicked person in the world says, I love someone or something, there's probably a grain of truth, an element of love in that person's life because they all need something or want to get something and they express that uh, through their form of love 
and, and that uh, the, the object of love or the person of love reciprocates. Now, but here's the problem. Now, uh, if you want to understand how this culture thinks, and whether you uh, like it or not, whether you believe it or not, we are all now children of Google. We are we we think as Google tells us to think, and the and I'll, I'll tell you why I believe that. Because if you don't know the answer to something, what do you do? You look it up on Google, right? And Google somehow has become the final arbiter of truth and knowledge. And so what I did was I simply typed in love definition on Google. And Google, which is a very uh, American-based, Silicon uh, Valley-based platform, defined love this way, an intense feeling of deep affection. An intense feeling of deep affection. Okay? So so the the cultural arbiter uh, says to us that love is an emotion which is a response to the the value of the object that we are giving affection to it is an emotional response to the attractiveness of the object or the person now here's the problem okay we in our culture believe that love is an emotional response So to a family member, to a friend, or a a romantic relationship, it is an emotional response. The problem is this. In any of those categories of love, the object of our love, whether it be a a child or or a friend or a mate, that, that object of love has been broken. She has fallen, as we understand from Genesis 3. In, in that way, no person who has ever lived except Jesus Christ is perfectly attractive or lovable. There has been no person who has ever walked on earth except Jesus Christ who can uh, elicit that strong emotion, deep affection in, um, in, in your, in, in, to your mind, whether you, you're intellectually curious about that person, whether uh heart, whether you are emotionally attracted to that person or to the eyes, whether you are physically attracted to that person, no person is ever fully valuable or attracted to, uh, attractive to you at all times. Every friend disappoints at some point in time, no matter how beautiful they get old, uh, no matter how kind, uh, how they how they make you feel at the moment, how uh, a, um, a girlfriend make you feel like oh, you're on cloud nine. We learned from um, Gary Thomas, our speaker for the weekend, that a, uh, a f- uh, that romantic affection or that infatuation, uh, biologically, we are told, can only last about 15 to 18 months. Infatuation as we learned this weekend, can only last 15 to 18 months. And then after that, that disappears. So even if you were madly in love with the person that you met 12 months ago, most likely, uh, just give it three to six uh, more months, and that infatuation will disappear. 
and that what will leave behind is the broken person that will disappoint. So the, the first problem with this kind of love is that the person will disappoint. That person will no longer be attracted to you, um, uh, at least um, not all the time. So, you know, you welcomed your child into the world and you thought, this is the most wonderful, I love being a parent. And you thought this is the kind of love that you thought would never be able to come out of your soul and heart. And go, I can't believe I can love a person like this. And then, and then a few um, months later, years later, your, your child learns this magic word called no. Right? And, and then um, you get together with other mommies and you discover that you have a club, a, 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 a melding of mind, a parents of terrible twos, terrible threes, terrible, uh, uh, you know, threes, four, five, and six. And then they get to adolescence and then it becomes even worse. You thought this is the perfect love. I never thought I can have an affection for another human being like this. I love my child more than even my husband. But then you realize, wait a minute, why is my child breaking my hair? Why do I want to pull my hair and her hair? Um, no kids in here, right? Because the object of your affection is broken. There's a second inherent problem with defining love in this way or natural love. It's not only your object of affection broken, but you are broken. You are broken. Your ability to assign values is broken. Your, assign, your, your, your ability to, to see beauty and, and assign beauty has been broken. You look at people with a natural affection, meaning you look at people not for their beauty, but what you can get from them. A get love. If I am going to befriend this person, what is this friend going to do for me when I am in need where I need to move and he has a pickup truck? Right? And if, there's, if there are moments when that friend disappoints, what happens to your emotion or your intense feeling? And so all of a sudden, this beautiful girl becomes a terrible, painful friend. And so there are two problems with this natural affection. One is that you are, uh, the person of your affection is broken and you're, you are broken. And so re- the result is this, that all human loves, all natural love, they're limited and imperfect, they're conditional and moody, they're unreliable and disappointing. All human loves, all natural loves are limited in this way. Let me ask you a question. You think about the the person that you have loved the most. Think about the person that you have loved the most. Right? A child, a parent, or a a friend, or a neighbor, whatever it may be. If that relationship has lasted 15, 18 months or longer... Uh, I, uh, I would venture to guess that you can point to moments in the, your relationship with that person that you did not feel an emotional attachment or positive feeling, but rather you've experienced emotional distress from that individual. You've experienced great disappointment and hurt 
And the greater, the closer the relationship, the more intense and disappointing that pain was. It's interesting because you thought that um, that person was so valuable in your eyes, whether it be to look at, to, to make you feel, to, to make you think you were so in love or attracted to that friendship or relationship, but later on only to experience deep, deep disappointment. So what does that mean? Has that person changed? Probably not. That person's always been that. Have you changed? No, you probably were always like that. But both of you are broken. That person really was unlovable. And so when your friend disappointed you or backstabbed you or, or talked behind your back, that probably your friend most likely uh, really did sin against you. But in all likelihood, you probably sinned against your friend also because both of you are broken. So in First John, uh, written by uh, the apostle known as the apostle of love, when he writes on the subject of this in, uh, inescapable command, which to us seems impossible because we're still trying to operate out of this natural love, John does not pick up the word uh, uh, philia um, uh, as, as to describe friendship, love, or or eros, as is to describe the love between a husband and wife, or even storge, the kind of love that a mother would have for her child, although those are strong, strong kinds of love. But rather, John picks up a, a different word. And the word that he uses is that of agape. Agape. And it is not natural, but it is supernatural. Beyond what we are capable of doing. How, is, how does the scripture define agape love? Now, if you've been in church even a little while, you learn that agape love is like unconditional love, right? Love without condition. Uh, favor with no strings attached. And the Bible does use agape love in that way. And, and when we read the Bible, when we see the word love, uh, you're not oftentimes sure what word is being used behind it. Uh, but in First John and the passage that we are in today, definitely all of the words, um, uh, all of the the, the words that, that is translated as love is agape. So how do we define agape love? Um, is it uh, unconditional love, or is it uh, you know the favor with uh, no strings attached? And those are descriptions, perhaps, of love. But I don't believe that's the definition of agape love. In fact, I, I, I would venture to you in First John chapter uh, 4, verses 7 and 8, we are given not a, uh, uh, not a description of what agape love looks like, because that can include unconditional love, but it gives us a picture of, uh, of agape love in essence. Okay, verses 7 and 8. Let's look again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever has been born of God and knows God, anyone who does not love knows, uh, does not know God because, and, and these famous three words, God is love. God himself is love. God himself is the definition of love. I want you to understand, God does not, dis- God is not, oh yeah, um, uh, Paul is this thing, and God happens to fit that description, but rather, God himself and his relational attribute defines agape 
love. So normally when we think of perfect love, we think in terms of natural love. And we define it and think, oh yeah, God is like that. And when God, uh, uh, you know, uh, veers off of our definition, we think, oh no, that can't be. But I want us to understand the scripture says that uh, the very essence of agape love is defined by how God uh, relates to people and others. So, supernatural agape love can, for example, because this is how God does it, discipline a child who's wayward and makes the child grieve to bring him back. We may say in our own natural reasoning that love will never cause the, uh, the object of love to shed tears, but the scripture says, no, no, God in his love will make people to shed tears. We think, uh, as we watch in some romantic comedies, that love is never jealous. But God says, no, I am a jealous God because you belong to me. We may think that a true love is never saying no to a request. But God, in his infinite love, says no to his children because God wants to give what we need, not what we ask for, not what we want. So agape love, supernatural love, is different from our definition or our our, our imagination of perfect love. God, in essence, is love. So, natural love is a get love. Agape love, supernatural, is a give love. Natural love withholds when the accounts are uneven. Agape love forgives uh, when it is uneven. And John says also that it is this kind of love that even though we are natural human beings, we can have this kind of love. John chapter 4 verse 12, no one ever has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We can we can um, have a mature kind of this, this agape love. Verse 17, by this is love perfected in us. This love can be teleos in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Listen, we don't have the capacity on our own to love perfectly. As natural people, the only thing we are capable of is get love. To use people to uh, do for us what we want, but in order to truly give supernatural agape love, we need to get it from the source, and the source is that of God and God alone. Let's move on to the process of supernatural love. Process of supernatural love. So the I did a, a very practical question that, that you should ask yourself is this, okay, if I understand theoretically, definition-wise, what supernatural love is, that agape love is, it's not a get love, but a give love, uh, but, but I, it still feels like learn, you know, listening to Spanish lecture, how do, I, how do I have that agape love, okay? And we normally think, uh, even within the church, uh, one of three ways that we can uh, acquire this uh, agape love. We can do it through information, meaning if I just know it enough that I will change. We think we can do it through emotion. If I just can get myself in a frenzy, have, have music and lifting up hands and darkening the room, that can become uh, supernaturally loving. 
or we can do it through imitation. Maybe if I see examples like a Mother Teresa in our midst, I will be motivated and I will follow her example. Okay. But 1 John chapter 4 says that it's not in any of those things. All of those things will help in information, emotion, and imitation. But look at verses 12 through 16. And in it, John uses a word uh, at least six times. And that word is meno in Greek. And let's look at it. I'll tell you where they are. And depending on your translation, they may be translated differently. No one has ever seen God, verse 12. If we love one another, God, meno, or abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide, or meno, uh, in him, and he in us. Um, because he has given us his, uh, of his spirit. Verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God, meno, abides in him. And he in us, in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Okay? So that word abide, or meno, in, in Greek, you know, occurs uh, no less than six times here. Uh, the English word abide means to live. Other uh, loose translation is to stay. Uh, to wait, to remain, it is not, know, feel, or to see, or even visit. And somehow, uh, the John uses, uh, shows us a picture of the three parts of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, says to us, if we somehow live in, abide in God, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that we would also then abide in love or have love, that supernatural agape love. Now, uh, let me try to illustrate this um, the best that I uh, can figure out how. And uh, Tim, can, can I use... Oh, thank you. Okay, we, we have such a great AV staff. They knew what I wanted to do. Okay, so I have here... Um, it's a space heater, right? And what does a heater produce? It produces heat, right? It produces heat. Uh, so a heater is the source of heat. Now, uh, intellectually, I can look at that heater and say, well, that's a source of heat. I'm going to study heaters. And the more I know heaters, perhaps I will acquire the essence of the heater that I can get hot. Or perhaps if I sing songs of heaters and, and I lift my hands and my eyes closed and songs and minor keys to our mighty heater, that, that I will become hotter. Or perhaps if I just study it and watch it and to see how it heats up its environment that I can become hotter. Right. Uh, let me illustrate, and I'm going to use Dan here as an example, and that is all. Uns- I'm not going to make you do anything embarrassing. And we're going to shake hands, and um, both of us are limited in just our body heat, just who we are, right? And and our natural temperature has a limit, 
And I can, I can say, you know, I, you know, dad's cold. And I just want to, like, you know, heat him up. And, and, and the way that I can do it, you know, on, out of my own natural sense, I'll, I'll produce some kinetic energy. And, you know, that's a little bit hotter. But really, if I want to produce heat, to produce warmth for those around me, what has to happen? I can't get beyond my core temperature and, and, and the little friction that I can produce. The only thing that will truly heat me up is not knowing, not seeing, not trying to imitate, not even passing by the source of heat. What do I need to do? I need to what? What's the word? Abide. I need to stay alongside of the heater. I need to let it uh, change me inside and out. I need to let the heater, the source of heat, change my core temperature so that that, that heat is not emanating from me because I do not have the ability to give heat in that way. But I need to allow the source of heat, the source of light, the source of unconditional agape love to warm me up inside and out so that if I am abiding constantly, frequently, uh, as a lifestyle, as, as the heater changes me inside out, so my core temperature changes. So if I'm, if I'm doing this, this is really hot on the side. So now when I go to Dan, he, he called me hot. That if I am called to provide warmth, supernatural love, uh, that agape love, the only way I can do it is by staying alongside of the source of heat. Anything else is fake and will frustrate us. And people will be able to tell that you're not being genuine, that you're trying to somehow manipulate your uh, natural love to get something from me. We can continue to try harder, but we don't have the capacity. We can learn from the, uh, the love of humanism, but, but really the world will continue to reinforce the natural love. That if you see yourself and you're not loving, forgiving, kind, and discerning, that perhaps uh, the problem is that either you've never known the true heat source or you're not living alongside of it, changing you inside and out. You know, um, when I was um, a college student and a little bit beyond, I was at a small church, and I got involved in um, youth ministry. And mind you, I am, I, my experience with youth back then wasn't that much. And so I remember one of the first retreats I went to, I, I almost got in a fight with one of the kids. <laughs> you know, I... I, I like, I think about it now, I'm so embarrassed to say it. I, uh, I just got, I, I don't want you, he didn't really do anything bad. I just got mad at him, but, you know. Uh, but, I, but there was another situation. And um, I remember this kid, and I, I, he was a junior high student, I think. And he was kind of a big kid, like, you know, and, and you know, both ways, right? Um, and for some reason, he was kind of a bully. He just kind of bullied people, the other kids. And, and the other kids kind of didn't like hanging around with him because he was kind of mean. 
And the only time he, he attracted attention is when he had money and his parents gave him cash and he would sometimes give cash out to kids. And we were at this retreat and, um, you know, he had, he had marginalized himself and, and hurt other kids. And uh, normally, if it was my natural self, I would, like, bully him in return, make fun of him. Uh, I was still bigger than him. But for some reason, I don't know if I had my quiet time that day or uh, if I had been sitting by the heater. And God showed me that, hey, you're so inadequate, Steve, but God loved you. Maybe God loves this young man, too. And so in the midst of a lot of conflict this boy was having, and I remember after one conflict, I pulled him aside and I I said to this boy, who's kind of bigger than everyone else's age, you know, um, if you're nicer to the other kids here, maybe uh, they'll like you uh, better. And something happened that I just stunned me. He started crying. And he said, why would anyone like me? This whole time, I thought he was an arrogant bully, but what I realized at that moment, he was insecure. The reason why he had money is because his parents both were at work and they appeased him by just giving him money. And he had taught himself that he was unlovable, unworthy of a parent staying with him. And so out of frustration and anger, he, he just lashed out. He was bigger so he could intimidate other kids, but he didn't think he was lovable. Worthy of love. And we talked, and from that moment on, of course, he had its moments, but he was just a model kid. He would do whatever I asked him, tell him. I, you know, my words of encouragement meant things to him. And it was as if... Um, He knew that he was unlovable. He knew he was mean. He knew he was ungrateful. But he needed someone to look beyond him and go beyond natural love and love him supernaturally. And when he understood that someone, and it wasn't me, but God can love him supernaturally, it began to change him. The source of love the process of supernatural love, and let's look at the implication of supernatural love. If you are, uh, like, in logic or anything, your logic would have told you this thing already. If the source of love, supernatural love, is God, and the process of supernatural love is knowing God and staying with God, then the implication is this. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Um, so what he's saying, it's, it's real simple, that the person who is loving in a supernatural loving manner, uh, that is not a get love, but a give love, that person is reflecting uh, the fact that he or she has been born of God and knows God. In other words, uh, agape love coming out of a person is proof 
that agape love is within that person. It conveys a simple biblical truth that is found all throughout, and this truth is what comes out of a person is what is inside the person. What is what comes out of a person is what comes what is in the person. Um, in in Matthew chapter fifteen, Jesus has an interesting encounter. He, he's talking to some uh, very strong religious leaders, and they're they're very religious and on on many different ways. Uh, but they have this odd way of neglecting uh, their parents in order to be religious, and then they're accusing Jesus of of uh, of not being religious enough. And he confronts them. And this is loving. This is agape loving. Chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, Matthew. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. I want you to understand that these religious leaders were worshiping. They were coming to church. They were raising their hands. They knew the Bible. They were worshiping, but he said, That's empty. And Peter asked, what does this all mean? I don't understand. I thought that if we were holy enough, if we were religious enough, if we sacrificed enough, if we gave enough, that God would see us as righteous. And that would make us worthy enough to be loved. Matthew 15, 17 through 20. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and so passes on? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. It's not what, what, what you do that defiles you, but what, you, what is inside of you comes out that defiles you. John MacArthur in his commentary says, Love is the preeminent mark of a genuine believer. Love for God is the benchmark of one's relationship to him. And love for other people is the epitome of human relationship. The love is the benchmark. As I said two weeks ago, and they will know that you are my disciples, not by your doctrine, not by your religious service, not by your denomination, not by your biblical knowledge, but by your Love. That's the benchmark. That's the proof. It's not the natural love, but you have supernatural agape love. John also says that this love, supernatural love, once you become a follower of Jesus Christ, it, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you by the, by the blood of Jesus Christ, and it begins to change you. And no Christian, no matter how devout, no matter how uh, sacrificial follower they are, uh, love has not been perfected yet, but it is continuing. Look at verse 17. By this love, uh, by, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. For um, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That love that comes inside of us continues to grow, and the word perfect means to the end or mature. And then verse 19, which is the verse that we uh, recite often, we love because he first loved us. And one of the ways to read this verse is this. 
the reason why we can love is because we have been motivated by God's love for us. It's like God did something nice for us, so I'm going to pass it on. So someone bought me lunch, so I'm going to be nice and buy someone else's lunch. But, and, and it has this sentence, but I believe it has more than that. We love because he loved, first loved us. It's not only we love because we have been motivated by his love for us, but um, a further, uh, I think, implication is this. We have the ability to love. We can now have the capacity to love with a supernatural love because God loved us and gave us supernatural love within us. Does that make sense? It's not just we're imitating, but really God's changed us inside out. If that's the truth, the corollary is also true. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's a scary, scary statement. Verses 20 and 21, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And the scripture often defines hatred, listen carefully, as a lack of love. He is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he, had, does not, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whom, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Agape love, supernatural love. Uh, the source is that of God. It's not us. And God himself. And, and we, need, uh, we need to go back to the source. And the process is to stay with God and let him change us inside out by the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. And the implication is that uh, God will change us, perfect that love within us. Now, most of us in this room, though, if not every single one of us, I think if we're completely honest with ourselves, or if you let your spouse talk on your behalf and, and your spouse uh, is asked, is you a supernaturally loving individual who can forgive all wrongs, who can love without condition, whose love never changes? I think honestly, most I think if, if not all of us, um, if not most of us, but I think every single one of us, uh, those who know us the best will say, he tries, but no, not really. He's trying really hard to understand the lecture of this upper division Spanish teacher, but he really doesn't get it. I think we're like the little boy who is a bully to those who are smaller, but, in, but inside completely insecure because there's, we understand we're ugly inside. And because we understand, we believe, and we know that we're ugly inside, it is not supernatural love that comes out, but ugliness that comes out to other people. I want you to not miss something here, though. The term love, agape, is used all throughout in terms, as a noun and a verb. This is love. I want you to do this love. But it's used in kind of an adjective noun form in verse 7 and 11. He begins the whole passage that we're on by looking at you, the, the audience or the, the readers, and he calls you this. And this is what God calls you. Beloved. Agapetoi. One who has been loved. Not with a natural love, but with a supernatural love. When you were that insecure boy, when you were that bully, when you felt ugly inside, 
Not because you were loving, but when you were mean, you were beloved. Repeat that in verse 11, beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I want you, men and women, to know that you are loved. Not because you were loving, not because you were lovable, but God of love loved you. For some reason, he chose you. And, and out of your ugliness, he chose to love you and, and gave his life for you and pursues you on a daily basis, whether you have makeup or not, whether you have success or not, whether you are good or not. God chose to love you and chooses to continue to pursue you and asks you and pleads with you to abide in him. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? So, Lord Jesus, we come before you and we are grateful for the love that we do not deserve, for the love that, uh, that we on our own are not capable of. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for holding us and not letting us go, even though there are moments when we shield ourselves from your love. We invite you to continue to love us. And Lord, may you change us inside and out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.